No, more importantly, I want them to feel. Like, I guess if I had one thing, I want them to be touched by the struggles of the, that my characters faced, by the struggles that people in general face. Right. I want them to become a little more open and understanding. And I think this is as true today. In fact, possibly more so now with after the pandemic, there's an awful lot of anger and struggle and bitterness and, and not understanding other people's points of view. My fellow sophisticated creatives, welcome to the JCB Art Studio from the dressing room. You know where 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 this is. Um, Ozzy is with me. I have scoured our location for all his T O Y S. So hopefully we will have an uninterrupted podcast today. Uh, today's podcast, I get to have a discussion with. Barbara Fratkin. She is back. So if you haven't listened to our first podcast, which was believe it or not in January of this year, which seems like eons ago, Barbara is a retired psychologist who is fascinated with people turning bad. She has written numerous short stories and novellas. She is critically acclaimed, and especially her critically acclaimed Inspector Green novels. She has been nominated four times for the Arthur Ellis Award of Excellence in the Best Novel category, and she has twice won with her Inspector Green series. Barbara, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Joanna. It's always fun. Oh, good. Good. So... You were out in my neck of the woods, out to the West Coast. Um, how was your trip? And if I understand, you were doing research? Uh, yes, I was researching the next Amanda Doucette novel. Um, the Amanda series is the one that I picked up after the Inspector Green series, and I'm currently writing the fifth one in that. And it's set in the wild West Coast of Vancouver Island. That, that this series is set all across the country and the five books are each in a different iconic Canadian setting, starting in the in Newfoundland in the in the east and moving across. So this is a perfect bookend at the other end of the country. Um, the trip was crazy, beautiful, but crazy busy. Yeah, uh, I had 16 days to get to know a part of the country that I'd never seen before. Oh, wow. I've been to New York, Victoria, but that was all. 
Um, and that's not really anything like the west coast of Vancouver, of, of Vancouver Island. Yeah. And the trip actually didn't, it almost didn't happen yeah. um, because of the pandemic. I always visit the places that I go, that I write about uh, for, for two reasons. One is for authenticity and for vividness of place, because I don't think you can write about a place if you haven't stood on the ground and listened to the sounds and inhaled the sense and looked at, at the light and the shadow and the, and what you see in front of you. Yeah. Um, as well as, you know, the geography of the West Coast is very different than anything I was used to. So I couldn't really do a good job of just plain imagining it. And books and internet and whatnot, they, they can't tell the whole story. No. Um, no. The other thing is they don't, the other thing is I don't want readers who know the West Coast to go, oh gosh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So I always want to try to get as many facts as possible um, yeah. there. Yeah. Um, now that I had I had planned a trip in May, but as you recall, that was in the middle of the third wave, um, and so I had to cancel that one. Um, and even though I was able to finally go in September, several of the most wonderful venues that I wanted to visit still weren't accessible. The Hot Springs Cove, for example, and the Wildside Heritage Trail on Flores Island is all was all closed this year, and. A lot of my book is set on Flores Island, so I had to take kayak trips and hikes and whale watching tours and boat bear watching tours and even a seaplane flight over the island in order to try to get a sense of it, even if I couldn't set my foot on it. Yeah. But seaplanes are, are, I love seaplanes. I love seaplanes. Well, yeah, it's fast. It was very fascinating to see from so far up. It's yeah. Cool. All right. I'm I'm excited about this. Okay. You know, you mentioned you had, you had taken a break from the Inspector Green novels to write the first Amanda Doucette, The Ancient Dead. That was the, the first, that's when she made her first appearance, right? Well, that was actually the fourth book. Uh, the first one was set in, in uh, Newfoundland. It was called Fire in the Stars. Right. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Nope, nope, that's my error. I My coffee is going cold on me. <laughs> that was my error. Now, we are going to talk about your latest Inspector Green novel. And I was curious, are you um, an author who can write both novels at the same time? Um, the reason why I ask that, because I know I, maybe it's because I'm not, I'm a new novelist. But when I get into a book, it's like I, I sink totally in. So I, I can't imagine pulling myself out to jump to another story. So do you, can, do, you, do you do that? Can you navigate both writing two novels at the same time? Um, no, not effectively. I know there are writers who can, but I suspect they're the types who approach it with a great deal more outlining Okay. And um, signposts and guides to help them find where they are in a story at any time. But I'm like you. I start. I if I start up into a book, I can't. I have to get into the flow of it, which can take days. Yeah. Um, to even within a scene, let alone the whole flow of the book. Yeah. Um, so it's bad enough that I have to do edits on the sec first one when I'm trying to write the second one. Oh, which geez. is what I'm cur was currently doing in the in the spring. Yeah. Um, 
And I have to do even things like this, talks, podcasts, readings, et cetera, are always about the book that I've already put to bed. And now I'm trying to write another one. Yeah. Um, and remember, what what did I write? What? Yeah, that's, that's what that story was. So no, I'm not good at that kind of multitasking. It's just a style of writer I am, I think. Okay, okay. So your 11th Inspector Green book, I can just hear fans out there going, yeah, I know, just from seeing on Facebook that your your fans, your fans out here, your fans across Canada. Now, I'm thinking, does he feel, Inspector Green, like I've been reading it, does he feel like a brother to you or do you have to do anything to kind of get back under his skin? I, I... <laughs> That kind of that question kind of makes me laugh because I, he doesn't feel like a brother. He feels like a husband. Okay. Um, I I know him very well. I spent at least fifteen years living with him, and even longer if you consider how long I spent writing the very first book before I published it. Yeah. Um. And when you're a writer, as you know, you're always thinking about the story, even when you're not at your your manuscript. Yeah. You're puzzling over plot holes and character issues. So he'd come along with me on my dog walks and when I'm stuck in traffic jams or emptying the dishwasher or on long drives down uh, the highway. So I, I argue with him about what he would do or what he what should come next in the story. Um, so as I say, I know him very well. He's But he's more a husband than a brother because he's closer. There's a more intimate day-to-day -day contact with him than I would have with a brother. I don't argue with my brother much, yeah. um, and I don't know his innermost secrets, yeah. whereas I created all of Green, so I do know him very well. Yeah. The one good thing about having a fictional husband, however, <laughs> is that you can, if you get fed up with him or frustrated with him, you can put him on a shelf <laughs> and forget about him for a few days. So, and when I, when I did have a husband before he died, he, I did spend more time with Inspector Green in a day than I did with talking to my husband. So yeah. an interesting experience having these fictional friends. Yeah. And, and it's almost like, okay, if are you going to play nice now? Okay. We'll get back to this. He's never going to play nice. Let's face it. Yeah. Inspector Green's never going to be compliant. Yeah. But yeah. He's always entertaining for me. That is so cool. And I find it's when I'm doing... Like you said, you're emptying out the dishwasher and something just pops in your head and you're just like, oh, I've got to write this down, you know, and then, you know, you come back and the dishwasher door is still left open and you're just like, okay, yeah, yeah, wait, let's get back to this. Okay, let's get the usual question out of the way. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about the latest Inspector Green novel, Devil to Pay, what it's mm -hmm. all about. Well, it, it is Inspector Green with a twist. And you're right. He, I, I wasn't intending to write another one, but I got to missing him and my fans definitely clamored for more. So, so I can't believe that it's been seven years since the last one that I wrote, None So Blind. Oh, wow. So since it was that long a gap, I knew I had to update it and have things happen to him during his life, in his life during that time. Yeah. Because... Um, these my novels are always written partly in in real time in the sense that the characters 
lives evolve over the series and things happen to them. Kids grow up, um, colleagues leave and whatnot. Um, so otherwise, if, you're, if you don't think of new things, of fresh angles and twists to keep the story from being a repeat of the past, it's going to feel like I've written this book before. So I was, all, I was all, always looking for a new way, a new way into a story mm-hmm. to keep it fresh for me, never mind for my readers. Um, I had laid the groundwork un- unwittingly in None So Blind for his daughter to be in the police services. So I thought when I opened this, when I opened his life again after seven years, well, she would have graduated from police university and and police academy and she would be on her way to being a cop and so let's let's put her in the story it was a perfect twist for this series and it injected a kind of emotional intensity to the story that police procedurals as a rule struggle with you know if you've got 26 books in a series and i don't know how some writers do that with the same detective how do you always make it riveting for that detective and for the reader as a result it's just another case it's another murder it's another case might be intriguing it might be brilliant detective work but you need some kind of emotional punch to it for um for the reader and for the detective to to make it special so in the devil to pay his daughter hannah is a a brand new rookie patrol officer and she responds to a domestic disturbance call in the home of a wealthy lawyer and her older seasoned partner dismisses the complaint. Nothing to hear, see here, you know, overreactive neighbor, that kind of thing. But Hannah's worried. Mm -hmm. She tries to follow up on her own. And when the lawyer disappears later to be found murdered, Mm -hmm. she is haunted by the possibility that she missed something. Yeah. Um, And she begins to poke around on her own encouraged, uh, by her father, bad bad boy. Yeah. And this leads to a near catastrophe. So that's basically what the story is about, that that relationship and that evolution of that case. And what I like, you talked about the intensity, is it's that family dynamic between the daughter and the father where Inspector Green is, is you know, he wants to say something and then he's like, no, I better not. I better hold back because I know it'll, she'll immediately shut down. Like, you know, like I remember, yeah, yeah, that's quite the dynamic there. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned real time and uh, your book is the first book I've read that addresses the pandemic, um, wearing masks Um even it, it was very well done that you bringing in the financial woes of this lawyer because of the pandemic. Um, I know with mine that just came out, I had started writing, putting in COVID, you know, mentioning about COVID. And then when I went through, I took out about mentioning COVID, but I mentioned pandemic instead. Um, near the end, I started to mention the pandemic. So what made you decide? Because I know authors for like, I swear the last, we're coming up two years now, in two years now have been having this discussion. Do you put it in? Do you not put it in about the pandemic? But you want to make it real. You want to make it relevant. So what made you decide 
that you wanted to incorporate the pandemic or did, did it just it fit in with the plotting? No, it didn't fit in with the plotting whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. one of those things of life gets in the way. Reality comes along and you have to do, you have to deal with it. Um, when I started to write this book, it was uh, probably just before, I'm trying to think where I was with this. The pandemic wasn't a big thing when I first started. Maybe it was early spring, maybe a month before. Um, I'm trying to remember when I submitted it. So, so I think it might have been about Christmas time of the two, like, 2019. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, and I saw so I was gaily riding along and everything was normal. The cops were having meetings, people were having interviews and whatnot. People were going to restaurants and sitting on patios, having having a beer. Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And at first I kind of ignored it. Yeah. Because I, I think we all thought it was going to be over fast. Yep. And uh, nobody only a few doctors were mumbling that it'll be two years. And the rest of us were thinking, oh, come on. So um, I ignored it. And then um, I started to worry because it was, time was moving on and it was still a thing and it was still, it was impact, impacting our lives, everybody's life far more than you would have thought. Mm -hmm. Daily routine was completely out the window. Mm -hmm. You didn't see your friends for, except on Zoom for months on end, same with family. And you didn't go to restaurants or movies or, and the police would have had to cope with that as well. They couldn't have had the same kind of incident room meetings and whatnot. I don't know what they actually did, but I imagine they had to do a lot of stuff remotely. Yeah. Um, so I, I started to worry about what I was going to do about it. Should I put it in or should I pretend it didn't exist like yeah. you or like, so I, I asked a number of people, writers and, and readers, and the, the voices were very split. Some people didn't want to be reminded of it in, in, in their books because in when they were reading because reading is a, a way to escape in a way especially during the pandemic yeah didn't want to be reading about the pandemic um so uh i was hesitant and i know some of my friends opted not to put it in other people said don't put it in but set the book either before or after yeah um but I wasn't, I'm not ever specific with my dates, but they're, they are contemporary books and they are realistic. In the end, what, what persuaded me was I do write realistic books that, about issues people face and wrestle with. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be very hard to ignore this huge elephant in our lives. Um, the, uh, it would be like writing a book set in 1942 and not mentioning World War II. Yeah. It just couldn't be done. It was a central feature of this time. So I started to adapt it on the fly as I was writing. Yeah. I was sticking in things like people were wearing masks or they weren't shaking hands or um, and whatnot. But uh, I kept, we always kept thinking it was going to be over. And eventually, yeah. you know, by the time the book came out, surely it'll be over, I thought. Um, so I was continuously having to modify it because the pandemic wasn't over yeah. and then vaccines came along and that changed the dynamic, but it still was, a, 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 the pandemic was still very much with us around about, uh, last spring, we were doing final edits mm -hmm. and, uh, with my editor and I said, okay, I have to make a decision on 
how much of this pandemic is still going to exist when this book comes out. Right. Because um, I have, you know, we have to put a, put, put down the curtain on it. It needs to go to printing and proofing and all that kind of stuff. So I decided this was around May, uh, maybe, maybe a little earlier. Uh, anyway, it was when people were, the vaccines were starting to come out in great numbers. Yeah. People were excited about the possible end of the whole thing. Um, third wave was over yeah. and we thought, okay, we've beaten this thing into the ground. So I wrote it as if it was in the rear view mirror, but people still very much part of people's minds. Like they're kind of reluctant to shake hands and they sometimes, um, you know, they're not totally going out and doing things. And uh, if, if the police are going to a door to interview somebody, they put on their masks and things like that. Yeah. So that was where I left it. And of course, here we are in the fourth wave and the book is coming out and we're not anywhere near where I said I'd be in the book, but I'm not a mind reader. So that was the way it ended up being. Okay. At least I tried. And I think, yeah. I think uh, people will understand that, you know, you can't, you can't write about something you don't know is going to happen. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's done well. It's so done well, Barbara, you know, and it was, it was, kind, it was neat. It was like, whoa. You know, like I thought, oh, okay, you know, so um, it was neat. And well, the other thing, too, is that you don't want it to take over the book. It's the no. book is still a story about a case and about yeah. a murder and, a, and the tragedy of that. And the pandemic is just part of the background scenery or the setting of it. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want everybody to be too distracted by it. So I tried to put it in fairly subtly. No, it, it's, 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 it's perfect. Perfect. So it's interesting. You should say, because yesterday, or was it Thursday? Thursday, I actually shook up. This is, uh, I shook up a landscaper's hand. She, she's a landscaper and I met her. And that's the first time I've shake, I've shook anyone's hand in over two years. Yeah. And it just for, We've all been double vaxxed and it has to do with the house and it for an hour and 15 minutes. It's like this pandemic never happened. Right. It was great. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But back to your novel, back to your novel. Okay. So I've, I've read an inspector green novel a long, 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 long time ago. Okay. And this is really it's a very, it, it's, you know, what I like is I've just, I've come in and like you said, we now have Green's daughter and it, it, it's, it's, it's almost, how do I don't want to sound like I'm still left in the sixties, but it's almost like you've extended the love or you've extended the, the, the character. I don't know if that makes any sense, but now we have Green's daughter as well, which is, I'm finding really cool. Or maybe it just it so rounds out rounds him out now having her anyways. My question though is, why is Green now in police Siberia? And I have a feeling that all your diehard Inspector Green fans are probably screaming when they hear this question. <laughs> well, they have to have read None So Blind in okay. order to know why. Yeah. Um, because it is of, it is because of something that came to light during that case. Okay. Um, so I can't really tell you exactly why or it would give away some of that story, but he was yeah. moved out of major crimes as a result of that case. Yeah. Um, because someone had to pay. Yeah. 
And I had intended that book to be the last in the series, as I had mentioned. I, I was going to embark on a new series just to keep my writing fresh and my adventures fresh. Um, so I was putting an end to his investigative career in None So Blind. Yeah. Luckily, I didn't kill him off <laughs> or retire him, um, which other writers have sometimes done by mistake when they don't know what, they, when they think they want to finish a series. Yeah. Um, because um, this way I could sort of resurrect him, as you mentioned, via his daughter. Yeah. Her, her involvement in frontline work in the police force meant that he, even though he was stuck doing court security and whatnot, would, would still, could still have a back door into the various crimes that he loved. Not, he didn't love the crimes. He loved solving them. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It's, it's, it, 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 it's, well, yeah. And like I say, I swear all the, um, diehard fans are probably screaming at me like, Joanna. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I just, I remember from my crown days, I think I remember some of the police we dealt with and if they were put on like desk duty or anything like that, they just, just hated it. Right. So, okay. Now I've, I, if anyone is curious, I listened to the Alan Alda podcast and he does have a really good podcast and he had a author memorist, uh, Roger Rosenblatt on his podcast. And I loved this question. Alan Alda asked him and he was talking to Roger Rosenblatt about plotting and he asked him if he plotted and Roger Rosenblatt said, no. And Roger Rosenblatt then says, you are, the reason why he doesn't plot, he, he said, because the author is Alice going down the rabbit hole and you don't know where the rabbit is going. And I loved that. Oh, I loved that. So Barbara, I'm asking you, do you plot or are you Alice? That's a very cool analogy. Is or, or a metaphor, I guess. It, I don't know what you call that. But anyway, yeah. it's something, literary illusion. Um, I used to go down rabbit holes completely blind. Okay. Uh, it, made, it makes for great adventure and suspense for me. It's slightly terrifying, as rabbit holes would be if you didn't know what was at the other end. Yeah. What I discovered as I started to make my stories more complex with multiple points of view, um, or maybe it was because I'm getting older and I can't remember remember where I, I'm going quite as easily or what what I have in my head disappears if I don't if I don't write it down in some way. Yeah. I found that I needed to think ahead a little bit more. Yeah. So I thought about your rabbit hole an analogy and I thought, well, um in in many ways I go down a rabbit hole, I but I find a little map at the bottom. Yeah. I follow it for a little bit and then I go go down another rabbit hole and sometimes there's no map and then I have that I'm like someone who's in a maze testing it this avenue or that avenue but again it's a sort of a series of um plotting from the that point in the rabbit hole forward and then going down into another unknown it's quite it's quite a fun kind of way to write actually 
Yeah. It allows me to be spontaneous and for things to come up that I totally didn't expect. But it also gives me a little sense of, oh, yeah, I have an idea where this is going, at least for the next three or four scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. Because I know I'm roughly figuring out book three. And it's it's weird because it's like the second storyline just kind of came together, like, bam, snap, snap, came together. And the main storyline, not so fast. And then I was thinking to myself, okay, let's change up the trope, okay? The reader is expecting this character, Lily, to suffer this outcome. So let's change it. And once I did that change and I changed something with, like, something came about with her character, then it's it was like dominoes. It started to happen. Um, now, I think you change up a trope with this wealth, this couple in this wealthy neighbor, neighborhood. Um, and I'm not wanting to, re I don't want to reveal anything. Um, so were you surprised with, with, let's say, like you said, you, you mentioned about going to like going down the rabbit hole and some surprises. So were you surprised with anything, any of the characters revealed about themselves? I'm always surprised by what the characters, what I come up with. I don't know if the characters reveal it or I discover it by asking myself questions about them. Yeah. And one of the questions I ask, and you allude to it with the changing up this trope is you ask, what's the most awful thing that could happen to this character? Or what's the most unexpected thing that could happen? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, what's, what's the reader expecting least? Those yeah. are all questions we writers ask ourselves in order to keep um, the story kind of vi alive and vibrant. Yeah. Um, sometimes um, when I make a decision about a character like that, it's deliberate. I like to play against type, yeah. for example. So a domestic call involving a wealthy, successful man stands the cliche on its head you know, yeah. of this lovingly drunk who slaps his wife around. This guy is a highly successful, well-admired lawyer. Yeah. In reality, abuse just hides more successfully under cover of that kind of success. Mm -hmm. In reality, some of the most abusive people are the very powerful uh, part of a marriage. The, they're, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they're police officers, they're people, men usually, um, used to being in control and exerting control. But most of my surprises are surprises to me too. Okay. They come from, as I said, the, that rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, for me, one of the major examples in the book of a surprise, it's not about a character per se, but except in a very broad sense, it's the victim's little dog. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, this this little dog is actually the wife's little dog um, yeah. the victim's wife's little dog and it goes missing yeah. on the same night as the lawyer disappears it was just meant to be another curiosity of the disappearance i just threw it in because i needed a reason for him to be storming out at night yeah. um, and it, but it turned out to be a major route forward for hannah in the investigation and a major subplot in the story yeah. Um, 
because as a frozen, as a, as a lowly police officer, she was frozen out of the investigation, obviously, out of the murder investigation, which was taken over by detectives. Yeah. So she decided she'd try to find the little dog because it was a loose end that nobody was paying any attention to. Yeah. And that search was a pivotal part of the story. Yeah. And so that was a fun kind of thing. And I hope, I think people will, that, that, that's also an emotional tug. You put a pet in. I didn't do that on purpose, but I have two dogs and who are mercifully being very quiet right now. There must be no squirrels out in the backyard. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mentioned the word and he heard me from the next room. That's that's awesome. (laughs) So that little dog, Barbara. Yeah. um, Yeah. I I just, I'm just going to say dog collar and um, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So you mentioned like we, Inspector Green's daughter, Hannah, very enjoyable. Um, and you, you feel her struggle because she's new and she wants to do more, you know, and she wants, she, she knows there's more going on. And I was just wondering, are you laying down the bri- a bridge to another series involving her as the, as the total lead protagonist? Well, I'm, I, when it comes to setting up a series, except for the Amanda series, which I pictured going across the country, that was the only main theme of it that I under that I had an overall arc for yeah. but I don't actually know what's coming next in my other novels in any of any of my other series so I hadn't actually thought about whether she would become the center of another series I, I might do that I don't know it, okay. it would be a fun thing I've certainly set up some characters for her to bounce off of including the young man that she meets and yeah. Um, and he's a detective. So uh, typically your patrol officer doesn't get a chance to get involved in investigations. So I would be having to do some fairly some fantastic leaps of credibility <laughs> to get that on an ongoing basis. But who knows? Yeah. It's a mystery. Yeah, good, good. So your novel, The Beginning, it's action and I and I'm not necessarily meaning like action as in you know guns firing off cannons you know um but the the two police officers Rick like the the 26 years of experience and like you said he's not rushing to this domestic complaint and and Hannah who's who's you know she's eager she literally wants to bust out of that Timmy's lineup to answer this call and there's the you've got the hook that was the that was the hook for me okay and i really enjoyed that opening scene um was there or is there any particular scene or scenes that you look back on as a favorite and i was just uh, and and why 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 would it be a favorite that's a very interesting question for an author there's usually scenes we hate yeah and we wish we had done a better job with, or we don't feel we did the full effect that we wanted. I would say that the last scene in the book where Green is talking to Hannah about what she's been through. Yeah. That's uh, one of my favorite scenes. It's a, a tender father-daughter relationship moment in a relationship that's um, often been fraught Mm 
Yeah. As, as I've, as people who've read more books know, this has been evol an evolving relationship. However, um, and that's the scene I want to leave people with, that, that scene between them. But I also love the scene where Hannah finds the dog. Oh, yeah. And um, I can't get away from this dog. Yeah. <laughs> just, the little dog is such a, a, a neat little addition. I had my police officer that reads all my books. He, I had him read the manuscript. And he said to me, that was his favorite part of the story, the, the hunt for the dog. And yeah. he said, you have to put the dog on the cover oh. of the book. Well, I don't have a say. In, well, I do have a say in the cover, but ultimately I can suggest stuff. Yeah. But ultimately the designers have a concept that they want to work with and it's supposed to go from book to book so that it is, there's a, a series brand, if you like. Yeah. Um, and dogs and cats on covers are usually associated with cozy, cozy mysteries, which mine aren't so I think that they decided no we can't really put a dog into this scene so no he didn't make his way into the cover but certainly he's I think people who especially people who have pets will enjoy that little part of the story yeah yeah okay so how much fun did you have with Hannah like I mean you have the Inspector Green I love novels with him and so how do you I'm just curious Hannah's always been fun Okay. She came into book number three in the series. Okay. Um, as a 16 year old, um, an alienated, uh, bitter, angry 16 year old in the midst of her goth rebellion, yeah. leaving, her, leaving her mother and coming to live with her father, whom she had never known. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was very hard. She was she was the constant burr in his side, if you like, always through the books. A, a worry. He wanted he wanted to love her. He wanted her to love him, but he wanted her to be happy. And she was none of those things. And she, but every now and then you'd get little glimpses of of humanity and under caring from her. Mm -hmm. And over the years, she gradually grew up. Yeah. I, I was there for all of that. I mean, obviously I made her that way. So yeah. um, she was a fun kind of a counterpoint to him. And he, it was a way also of showing another side of his character during those, those books. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's after all those years of fighting with him and mistrusting him and everything, what I found most enjoyable was that she turned out to be a chip off the old block. Mm -hmm. She's so much like him. Yeah. That, that was a fun part of it as well. Cool. Okay. So your dialogue is so bang on. It's just such a pleasure to read. And if it's all right, could I, I would love to read dialogue, some of the dialogue when Hannah goes to talk with the lawyer's mother, if that's all right with you. Sure. Or if you want to read, by all means, like I, I. No, you go ahead and read. I don't actually have my book with me. Okay. I, one of those things I forgot to bring down. Okay. okay. So Hannah's going to speak with the, the lawyer's missing and she's going to go speak with the lawyer's mother. Okay. 
and she's at the mother's place. Okay, so I'm going to start. I'm starting kind of in the middle of the scene here, people. So here we go. Hannah sidestepped the accusation. Did you hire the private investigator as the police suggested? Joan leaned forward. Private investigators cost money. I pay taxes. I expect you police to do your job. When there is no foul play suspected, of course there's foul play. There has to be. This is completely uncharacteristic of my son. He's left not only his family and me high and dry, but his clients as well. Hannah hid her surprise. Johnson had not mentioned that. In Detective Johnson's assessment, the woman barely investigated. She talked to his friends, his wife, and asked me if he had a history of depression, which is an insult. She asked his law colleagues if he'd made any enemies, and they all said what a great guy he was. But of course he's made enemies. He's a lawyer, and a damn good one. He took people to court and cost them millions when he won. But did she ask me questions about that? And then it continues. Hannah's curiosity was piqued. It was a possibility that hadn't occurred to her. Perhaps this whole family dispute was irrelevant. She chose her words carefully, aware she might screw up future lines of inquiry. In her interview training, don't lead the witness, had been drummed into her. What do you think happened to your son? I don't know. But don't you think it's strange that I had to report that I had to report him, that his wife wasn't worried when he didn't come home for 10 days, even though his law partner said there was no business trip? She was happy enough to be rid of him. Hannah was still mulling over that idea, which had already occurred to her, and trying to figure out another non-leading question when Joan gripped the arms of her chair and took a deep, tremulous breath. I'm frightened. I don't know anything for sure but I have a bad feeling. I never liked her or her family. They're from El Salvador and had a rough start in a terrible part of the world. Her parents learned how to survive and I don't think it was always legal. My husband ran a construction business and hired the father when they first came to Canada. When Christina finished high school, my husband took her on in the office too, to help out the family. She set her sights on my son from the first day she spotted him. Ted was no match for that hot-blooded Latina. I'm sure it was her mother's idea. That woman knew a good thing when she saw it. Mic drop, Barbara. Oh, I love that dialogue. I love that dialogue. <laughs> so glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. I did. Like just, just yeah. Like it, and like and. And so then your character Joan stops, and I can just see Hannah's just like waiting there, thinking. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, so, like, just, did you, ah, I want to say um, just the most blatant question. How did you come up with that? Or just how did you work on that? Or what was your inspiration for that dialogue? I suspect um, sometimes when I'm on a roll, when I'm in a scene, like I, I get in, especially dialogue scenes. Yeah. Um, between two people, I uh, can write them fairly quickly because I kind of hear the voices of the characters in my head. Yeah. I sink into their skin. And um, so I suspect that was written without a need for a lot of editing. Yeah. That was probably the, the way in which I 
the, the thoughts came to me. Yeah. Um, the only things I would have had to do is tweak it a little bit in terms of how I put the family history, because at the beginning of the novels, I never know who's um, who the suspects are going to be or even who's what kind of backstory everybody's going to have. I don't know whether a character is going to be important or not. So uh, at some point I realize I need to make the characters create a backstory for them or make the backstory different in order to make them a credible suspect or to raise a reader's suspicions or whatever. So I might've modified a few of the story, a bit about their history that, that she gave about them. I knew they came from El Salvador. I knew they were, um, had, had been uh, working for her husband's construction company. And that was how Christina had met her late, her, her, her husband, the one, the victim. Mm-hmm. But, um, all, all the details about the relationship between the mother and the father and the, and the daughters and the, what, all those people um, would have been probably slightly tweaked later. Okay. Okay, and you, I'm just thinking, you know, the wife's story, I'm like, you're saying how they're, you know, her family, they're from El Salvador, you know, and grew up rough part, terrible part of the world, and they learned to survive. I'm guessing that there is a lot more to her backstory that even, that didn't even make it in the book. Um. Oh, yes. Yes, it would yeah. have been. And there, I hinted at a few things along the way, borrowing a little bit from some of the stuff that's been going on now yeah. at the U.S.-Mexico border with the people who've been streaming up from Central America, fleeing various kinds of terror yeah. and, um, you know, being stuck at the border in camps with struggling to figure out how to get further. Yeah. Um, that's an old story. These, this family here in my book would have come in an earlier wave. We've had waves of different refugee groups coming up over the years. Yeah. And the El Salvadorians would have come in the, um, I think, 90s, if I recall. Okay. I didn't know that when I wrote this book, but now I've forgotten it. But it was some time ago because it was because some time has passed. They've been married. They have uh, teenage child as well as a, as a younger one so it would have been at least 20 years ago yeah um, yep. yeah but some of the stories don't really change you know the, the terror the leaving with nothing not knowing where you're going the, the bribes you have to pay the cost of things um, the constant danger all of that and and the uncertainty of whether you're ever going to get where you're going right. right okay okay so what do you hope to give your readers with your novel? I mean, it's literally in our novels, we're basically putting our, our souls in them. So what do you hope to give your readers with your novels? Well, first of all, I want to entertain them with a powerful, compelling tale, because if they don't read the story because it isn't interesting, they won't get anything else out of it, obviously. Yeah, But um, so that's my first goal is to tell a powerful, compelling story. Um, But I also want them to think. Um, No, more importantly, I want them to feel. I I guess if I had one thing, 
I want them to be touched by the struggles of the, that my characters faced, by the struggles that people in general face. Right. I want them to become a little more open and understanding. And I think this is, is true today. In fact, possibly more so now with after the pandemic, there's an awful lot of anger and struggle and bitterness and, and not understanding other people's points of view. Right. Um, I hope I don't moralize in my stories because that's a, ki- a killer. Yeah. But I do want people to walk in the shoes of the characters in my sh- story, especially the so-called villains. Mm-hmm. And to think there, but for the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. Good, 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 good. Okay. So, Barbara, my favorite question. I will, you know, this is coming. So, <laughs> you take your dogs for a walk, and Inspector Green and Hannah approach you. What would they say? They would probably say very different things. Hannah would be all over the dog. <laughs> um, she, she, the reaction I usually get with my two dogs is uh, how how beautiful they are and what are they because they're yeah. not a common breed. Yeah. And so she would ask those two questions, and um, Inspector Green would probably be standing there smilingly, smiling indulgently. I'm not sure he'd actually say anything. Interesting. Sure he gets a whole lot of words in edgewise. He's he's a he's an observer and a listener a lot of the time, not a talker, and that's what makes him a good detective. Yeah. Um, in one of my earlier books, a few times over the years, I've alluded to Green thinking of himself as, as somebody invisible and therefore underestimated, because he's not he's not physically very striking. Yeah. And he doesn't say that much, just quietly come into a room and watch. And he's sizing everything up. Yeah. Um, and they, that means people don't realize he's got a mind like a steel trap and he's seeing way more than they might want. Okay. So that's his strength as a detective. So I think that's probably what would happen. Cool. cool. Okay. Okay. So, Barbara, I'm, now, if there's anything you would like to add, just yeah please what if anything you'd like to add and you have a virtual launch coming up i do yeah i guess that's what i should probably add on october 26th okay. at 7 p.m um by our time here in ottawa so that would be three hours earlier for you out on the east west coast yeah and all the other time zones fit in between somewhere except for the east coast which would be ahead um and uh if you if anybody's interested in going it's going to be on zoom i'm frustrated by that i have to say i wanted this one to be in person i wanted the pandemic to be over i had a i had to launch the ancient dead by zoom and although it was fun it's not like meeting people it's not like seeing your old friends and 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 chatting and and you know just the general buzz and energy of a book launch where so um, I was frustrated that this one also has to be virtual, but it's going to be by Zoom. I'm going to be interviewed by my very good friend, Mary Jane Maffini, okay. who, who knows all my secrets. And I hope she doesn't tell them all. I don't think she will. She's a smart cookie. But um, uh, I think if anybody is interested in going, the uh, 
I can send, I'm not sure the best way to do this because I have, a, I have a Zoom link, but I also have an Eventbrite invitation, which I can send the link out to anybody. Okay. So um, I guess either if people can find my, uh, my contact on my website, send me a little note saying, send me the Eventbrite invitation. Yeah. I have to put that on my website. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think I'll try that. I'll put it on my website. Yeah. And uh, then they can sign up and come. Okay. Okay. And hear and, all about this book. And I've seen it on Facebook too. Yes, it's on Facebook as well. Really? If okay. you happen to be a Facebook person, you can message me on Facebook and uh, I will um, send you the link as well. Okay. Okay. So when is the next Amanda Doucette novel coming out? It's. Um, I su- it's supposed to be next fall. We will see. It's due in um, in February this of this 2022, um, and that's going to make it a kind of a tight squeeze to get it edited and organized and in the printing queue and all that in time. But they say they can do it. I don't know. There's a lot of printing. There's a lot of publishing production delays apparently right now. So okay. uh, let's hope let's hope for the best. And hopefully by next year. I will be uh, able to have an in-person launch. I have not put the pandemic in this book yeah, because I'm hoping that it's going to be finished by next year when this one comes out. Let's yeah. hope. Okay. Well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm being selfish and I'm totally asking you about this because I'd like to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's and I'm really sorry. I missed you when I was, in, was out that way. Would have been fun to get together, but it, it was a, you know, it's it's time i swear is on steroids right now trying to keep up with yeah, yeah. with time and i know i was i was getting ready to do my launch and the move and the house build and picking up books like, yeah i have a, i have a friend an old high school call, um call, classmate who has a place on thetis island Okay. Yeah. Across the way. Yeah. You take the ferry from Shamanis to go there, actually. Yeah. And I spent two days with her at the end of this past trip, um, in part because I couldn't find any place to stay on, in the Tofino area by the end. The accommodation situation was awful. Yeah. Um, and so I just said, oh, I don't need to be here anymore. I can, I can head off. Yeah. No. See the other side of the island. I swear our little island um, sunk a little into the Pacific <laughs> with the number of tourists that kind of yeah, <laughs> came, yeah. right? No, it was, it was, it was, it, there were a lot of people. And that was one of the reasons why I had to set this book on Flora's Island, because it's supposed to be a wilderness book. Yeah. And I knew from my reading that thousands of people are in Tofino every day and the whole Pacific Rim area um, is one of the biggest destinations. So I thought, well, I can't really create a proper wilderness mystery where people can hide and get away from each other and get into trouble without everybody noticing. Yeah. So I, I went for one of the more remote islands and then I been, got stuck not being able to actually visit it. But yeah, it, yeah. it is the way it is. Okay. Okay. So listeners, if you like my podcast, just stop on by at the jcvartstudio.net. And I will be posting links to Barbara's po- um, Barbara's website 
And thank you for joining me, Barbara. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Joanna. And and good luck with your new house. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.